Y'all are too kind. Good morning. John chapter 5. So good to have all of you here with us this morning. As you're turning to John chapter 5, let me just say that the enemy, knowing that his time is, is near to being done, will very strongly attack those areas in our lives that we as believers are to hold as holy and sacred. And one of those areas is, is, our, is our marriages. And this is the reason why we need you to uh, sign up and to, and to be a part of this marriage seminar that will be held in just a few weeks. Uh, we can't take anything for granted. The Lord said we need to be ready. We need to be ready. So let's do that. Let's be ready in every area of our lives, whether it be in our marriages, in our homes, as parents, as singles, as individuals, as, uh, you know, even, even in, in the areas of our work and school and whatever it is, we have to remain light in a dark world. And we need to let that light shine brightly because what it does is, in fact, it shines brightly the person and the work of Jesus Christ in us. So let's keep that in mind. John chapter 5. Uh, your bulletin says we're going down to verse 30, but up here it says we're going to verse 24. I forgot we we're going to come to the table of communion this morning, so we had to shorten it a little bit. But uh, in, a, in a way, it, it really it worked out. I, I, I realize how wonderful the Lord is and in, in the way that he designs everything. So the, uh, this passage of scripture is, is really for us today before we go to the table of communion. So let's get busy here. When we began our study in, in John chapter 5, few weeks ago, our focus was going to be on Jesus' authority and power over all of life. And in fact, it was, and it remains, and it still is, that our focus is to be on his authority and power over the physical, as validated in his healing of the man lame for 38 years, verses 1 through 9. And the demonstration of his authority and power in rightly affecting and properly interpreting the Sabbath law in his healing of the man on that particular Sabbath day. Now, this of course raised the ire of the religious leaders that were witnesses of a great miracle in their midst. Now remember this. And remember how significant this miracle was. The very fact that a person that they knew that had been sitting on a bed or actually laying down on a bed for 38 years. I mean, that, that's a fact that could not be hidden. They saw him day in and day out. Eventually, wherever he had begun, he ended up being at the, at the pool of uh, Bethesda. But had no one to actually put him into the water, with, you know, as the legend went, that if you got yourself into the water before, you know, or when, when it was being stirred, that, you know, you would receive your healing. It never happened. And his focus and his attention was really upon that and not upon the healer himself who is, who is the Lord God, who is the one who, is, who has the power over life and death and, and even of making us strong when we were weak or healed when we were lame. So this was a great miracle that took place. But the religious leaders were blinded. Blinded, nonetheless, by their gross misinterpretation of the Sabbath law. So now they were willing to dismiss and to negate this miracle. In other words, they were willing to dismiss and negate, which means to deny, to disprove, and even disavow the miracle itself, as if it never happened. And then add to that what they wanted to do to Jesus. When they discovered, and by the testimony of this man who was healed, who went to them later after having met Jesus, and Jesus, in fact, changing not only his body, but also his spirit, 
and his life, giving him life, that this man went to them and said, it was Jesus who made me whole. It was Jesus that did this. He wasn't, as I said last week, he wasn't ratting on Jesus. He was testifying of the power that Jesus had. So now what do they want to add to, to their being so upset at what Jesus did with this man? In other words, he caused this man to rise, to take up his bed, and to walk. But because it was the Sabbath, they said this man, by carrying his bed, was breaking the law of the Sabbath and working. And as we saw last time, that was pretty ridiculous. So what they wanted to do now was murder the Messiah based not upon the word of God, but on the corrupt restrictions added to their own rules and regulations by which they govern their understanding of the law. And as I also mentioned last time, from this point on, Jesus would be scrutinized, he would be criticized, he would be sought after, he would be persecuted for not only breaking the Sabbath law as interpreted by the religious leaders, but for continually humiliating them while the crowds favored Christ. Everything that Jesus did, they saw as a marvel and a wonder, and they said, this has to be the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, who has come to deliver us from our bondage to Rome. But according to the leaders, they said he broke the Sabbath law. But we know something. He was the one who gave us the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath was for men, not for men for the Sabbath. And so we can better understand the verse that leads us to our text for today, which is where we ended last time, verse 16. We'll start there in verse 16 so you can see something of a great importance. It says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now, I only reference the fact that they would begin to persecute him. This verse, in fact, as we see it go into the next verse, is telling us that they caught up to him. And now they were persecuting him. And now they were ready to slay him because of what he had done on the Sabbath. But verse 17 says, but Jesus answered them. Now take note of what Jesus says to them in one little sentence. He says, my father worketh hitherto and I work. That's it. That's all he says. My, work, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Now, based on that simple little statement, what happens? Look at verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought the more to kill him. Now they wanted to kill him even more. What did Jesus say in that little statement? Now they sought to kill him more because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And you think, in that little statement he said that? That's, what's, that's what we're going to discover today. So when it comes right down to it, all men have to face this earth-shattering, earth-shaking claim of Jesus Christ. And the claim is this. And I'll, I'll state the claim broadly. But all authority belongs to Jesus Christ. All authority belongs to Jesus Christ. And you say, from that statement, that's what we're looking at? Yes. And he could make that astounding claim because he proclaimed that he possessed equality with God. And then he proceeded to give proof after proof which unmistakably verified his claim. So let's look ahead for just a moment at a statement that the Lord Jesus makes to those religionists, to those uh, legalists, uh, the religious leaders of, of Israel of the time. Just jump down to verse 26 and verse 27, and we're going to come back to this next week because we're, that's, this is part of our study for next week. But nonetheless, just we use this in introducing Jesus' authority, by the way, a few weeks ago. Jesus said, for as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. So this brings us back now to Jesus' claim of equality with God. 
And he says, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. So let's look at that one little, little sentence of Jesus. My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Now, take a close look at that in your scripture. So that's not up here. Did you notice that he didn't say our father? Did you notice that he said very clearly, my father? My father? He was claiming a unique relationship. Here was a father-son union. Here was a person claiming union with God. And take note, the shattering fact was clearly understood by the religious leaders. They understood exactly when he said, my father, what Jesus was claiming. They understood clearly that Jesus had said that God was his father. Now I want you to compare that with a statement made by the Apostle Paul. And I bring Paul up here because Paul was one of those religious leaders, not per se, in other words, one of them then, at that time, but he was just like those religious leaders of Jesus' time. In fact, he was exactly like those religious leaders who would have said exactly the same thing. You have just claimed to be equal with God, therefore you need to be stoned for blasphemy. But because Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus one day, he would come to be able to say this with no reservation whatsoever. And that is what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, and he says, He that spared not his own son. You see, Paul came to grips with the fact that Jesus could claim that he was equal with the Father as the Son. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul would write, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, these religious leaders of Jesus' time also understood clearly that Jesus was making himself equal with God. So once again, with the Apostle Paul, he, he makes it clear of his understanding of that. Though he had believed otherwise, in times past. Paul would write in Philippians 2 verse 6, who being in the form of God, speaking of Jesus by the way, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So once again, he embraces that understanding that Jesus, as the Son of God, is equal with the Father. Now, we could spend a considerable amount of time now talking about the Trinity and the issues of, of, of realizing that there's only one God, yet we realize through the scriptures that there is a person named the Father and he's called God. There is a person that is named the Son and he's also labeled and called God. And there is a person called the Holy Spirit. And yes, a person, person Father, a person Son, and a person the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is also called God. Just read Acts chapter 5. Yet, the Bible makes it very clear there's only one God. So we could spend a lot of time doing that, and, and we're not going to be able to do that today. But nonetheless, the claim that Jesus made himself before these religionists was unquestionable. They knew exactly what he was claiming. They knew that he was claiming to be equal with God. So now there are groups today such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, such as the Mormons and other non-Christian cults that say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Even with, within what is called Christendom today, there are groups of people that say, well, you know, if you look at the, you know, you look at certain things, Jesus never claimed to be God. That is completely and utterly wrong. You study the scriptures long enough and you realize Jesus claimed to be God all the time. So at least the Jewish theologians or the Jewish religionists were honest when they responded the way they did to what Jesus said. That, uh, you know, that they recognized that Jesus made himself equal with the Father, which, of course, he is. I want you to remember the statement that Jesus made to the Samaritan woman at the well, what's something we studied a few weeks ago. Notice what he said to her. In, in John 4, 26, it's a simple little statement. Again, the simple becomes profound. 
Jesus said in John 4, 26, and speaking to the woman that's in Samaria at the well, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Now, in, in this particular construction, in the English, it doesn't, it, it can be seen as clearly. But literally, in the Greek, this is what he said to her. He said, I am that speaks to you. I am speaks to you. Now, two words in the Greek, ego, ami. I'm not talking about lego, my ego. The word ego, e-g-o, is, is uh, in the Greek, the word for self or I. And the ami, e-i-m-i, transliterated from the Greek, well, it actually is Greek, but to us, i-e-m-i I is I am or am. So, ego, ami, I am. Why is this important? Because in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was out in the wilderness tending sheep and was uh, startled by seeing a burning bush at a distance, and he goes to investigate this burning bush, and as he approaches this burning bush, a voice comes forth out of this burning bush, even though it was burning and it wasn't being consumed. He hears a voice that says to him, take off your shoes for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. And God begins to speak to Moses. And he tells Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. And I want you to deliver my people from the bondage of the Egyptians. And after Moses stuttered and stumbled a little bit during that conversation, eventually he asks God, what is your name that I might tell them who is sending me? And God says, I am that I am. When the translators of the Hebrew scriptures uh, wrote what is called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, that passage was very clear. God said, ego Amy, I am. So as I said in, in the very introduction to the book of John, the Gospel of John, a few months ago, there are seven miracles or seven wonders that, that are, are focused upon by John to show that Jesus is truly the Messiah of Israel and seven I am statements. And so... With that in mind, even if we only had the Gospel of John, we have enough confirmation and we have enough evidence that Jesus himself claimed to be God and equal with the Father. So with all of that in mind, to say that Jesus never claimed to be God goes against what the Scriptures teach. In fact, can, can I uh, get a little bit ahead of myself? Would you all let me do that? I, I don't know why I ask you. I do it anyway. So, uh, well, let me get just a little bit ahead of myself because I know that in a few weeks we're going to go to John chapter 8. And there in John chapter 8, Jesus is confronted again. And he speaks about having known Abraham. <laughs> and these guys said, look, you're not even 50 years old. And you, you say, you know, Abraham. And, and so this is what he says in John 5, uh, 8, 58. Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. What was he saying? He was making the claim that he was, in fact, God. God in the flesh. What did John begin with in John chapter 1? To make it very clear that in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 of that very same chapter, what did, what did John say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, talking of Jesus Christ, speaking of Jesus Christ. So, got a little ahead of myself, right? That's okay. We'll come back and we'll spend more time in that later. So there's a second claim now that we have to look at, a second claim. In our text as well. And the claim is this. Again, in verse 17, the words, my father worketh hitherto, and I work. 
In the Greek, heos arti ergazetai, which means my father keeps on working even until now. My father keeps on working even until now. That's what he says in that one statement. My father keeps on working even until now. That means that God never ceases to work even on the Sabbath. God never ceases to work even on the Sabbath. Now, <laughs> it is true that when God created the world, back in the book of Genesis chapter 1, that scripture says he rested on the Sabbath day. And that between chapter 1 and chapter 2. He rested on the Sabbath day. Six days, six 24-hour yoms, yom, Y-O-M, means full 24-hour day. Six 24-hour days, God created everything. On the seventh day, he rested. Now, please understand this. Too many people have the idea that resting by God means that as soon as he finished the sixth day of, 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 of creating, that he just kind of dragged himself into his, his place and, and went, oh, my, that was a lot of work. I got to rest. And he went and laid down someplace, you know, on his sort of mattress or whatever it is. And he rested. <gasps> no. Now it is true that when God created the world, Scripture says he rested on the Sabbath day. The seventh, Sabbath is seven. But this means he rested from his created work. He rested from his creative work, not from his other work. What's his other work? What about his work of love and mercy? Does he ever rest from that? What about his work of helping and caring? Does he, does he ever rest from that? I mean, we better be thankful he never rests from that. In a word, his work of compassion. God never rests from showing his compassion to us, even on the Sabbath day, even on the day of rest, because he looks after us and he oversees us continually and sovereignly. This is the God that loves you. This is the God that loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you think that we would break the Sabbath law if somehow we, 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 we tended to receive the Lord on, on the Sabbath day? You can't do that. Do this, don't do that. No, wait, wait a minute. No, he saves us on the Sabbath. He saves us on the day after Sabbath. He saves us during the week. He saves us when he wants to save us. He's doing his work, you see. <clears throat> and so Jesus was claiming to be equal with God, claiming to have the same right to work, even as his Father works. And that is, in this case, to erase the wrong laws of man and to establish the just and compassionate laws of the God of Israel. And by the way, if God ever stopped working, watch out. If God ever stopped working, we'd be in trouble. I want you to listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 121. You know, I, I, when I was putting this together, I thought, well, there's a couple of verses there that really bring this out. But as I read the whole psalm, I said, you know, we need to hear this whole psalm. We need to see the full extent of how God loves us to the extent that he works for us every minute of our day, every minute of our time. Notice, if you will, in Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help come, cometh from the Lord, which, which made heaven and earth. So the Lord that created all things by the word of his power is the one who gives us the help when we need it. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Now, in the next verse, he says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. So he neither slumbers by laying down to rest, nor does he fall asleep and then say, You know what, guys, I'll see you in, a, uh, in about eight hours. Never slumbers nor sleeps. Always works. The Lord is thy keeper. In other words, he is the one who keeps you, who guards you, who guides you, who protects you, who provides for you everything you need. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. Do you see God working, working, working on our behalf in these verses? 
And then in verse 8, it says, The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. But on the Sabbath, listen, be thankful there's not a verse 9 that says on the Sabbath, you're on your own. Aren't you glad that that isn't there? The, the last part of this makes it clear. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. I am not sleeping. I'm not slumbering. I'm with you. I care for you. I love you. I'll protect you. I'll watch over you. And even in the midst of trials and tribulations, I'm not leaving you. I'll strengthen you. I'll strengthen you through the trial. I'll strengthen you through the tragedy. We'll all face those things, right? In this life, there are so many things that we face, but know this, God will never leave us alone. He'll work us through those troubles. He'll work us through those trials because of his great love for us. And so a person either accepts the claim of Jesus to be equal to God or else he rejects the claim. Folks, that's it. The claim was clearly made. And therefore, there is no longer a middle ground upon which men can stand. Man, as far as mankind is concerned, is now forced to make this decision. Either Jesus is who he says he is or he's not. Now also, some take the words of, 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 uh, and behavior of Jesus on the Sabbath, what he did on the Sabbath day, as the approval for working on Saturday or Sunday, uh, the day that normally is used for man's rest and worship. But this is a false reasoning. Jesus was not violating or erasing the Lord's day as the day for man's rest and worship. Just the opposite actually is true. He was saying that the day was to be used not only for the worship of God, not only for the, the consideration, the meditation upon the things that God has done for us, but also it is to be a day for compassion and mercy and good. It is a day for helping men in their needs. And so, in verse 19 of our text, John 5, 19, Jesus, in responding now to their greater hatred, their greater persecution upon Jesus, he says to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son Likewise, this verse gives us the very first proof that Jesus was equal with God. The very first proof that Jesus is equal to God. And the proof is his obedience to the Father. His obedience to the Father. First of all, Jesus didn't act alone. He didn't act independent of his Father. He didn't take his life into his own hands. He didn't do his own thing. He never acted selfishly. He never walked separately from God the Father. It wasn't as if Jesus was sent by the Father and he said, you know, Jesus, go down there. These people are a mess. Uh, whatever you can figure out, go ahead and do. It brought to mind last night when we were going through this. Uh, it brought to mind the, the, the movie, you know, um, uh, the, that, that Christmas movie. Um, what is it? Uh, Jimmy Stewart. Oh, you lost the, it's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Thank you. Senior moment. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, you know. It's about Jimmy Stewart, you know, being this guy. You know, what if, what if something else had happened, you know? Whatever. But anyway, there's this angel involved, you know, and this angel comes. And it almost seems like this angel's kind of bumbling around, you know. He's kind of, you know, he's getting another chance to do something right. Or it's like, you know, God doesn't work that way. And he was especially not worked that way with his own son when he sends his son to this earth. To be the seed of the woman, the, the answer to the, the problems that were found in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man the disobedience to God's law, the listening to the temptation of the enemy. 
No, when, when the, the, the plan has been a plan from the ages, and, 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 and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit together as one God knew this plan from the very beginning. This, is, this was not something that was just kind of worked on. This is why we need to remember that Jesus is not just, you know, the, the only begotten Son of God. I mean, you know, he came in flesh for a reason. But in fact, the scriptures tell us he's eternal. And he was the creator. Read Colossians chapter 1. So he would not come and do whatever he would want to do, or, or, or never would Jesus walk separately from his Father. Take note of the stress that the Lord places on his statement at the beginning here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself. When he says verily, verily, I know that a lot of times we, we, we translate it, and it's rightly translated as true, truly, truly, or truthfully, truthfully, I say unto you. But the stress of the, those words are like this. Listen, listen to this truth and play close, pay close attention to what I have to say to you. The Son of Man can do nothing of himself. So from this, we need to understand that Jesus did exactly what he saw the Father do. Do you notice the, 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 the focus upon doing? The son, of, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. So he did exactly what he saw the Father do. There was no divergence. In other words, there was no deviation. There was no departure. There was no discrepancy. There was no disagreement whatsoever between the Father and the Son. Jesus was in perfect, unbroken communion with his Father. He was of the very same nature and person as his Father. You can read that in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says that Jesus was the express image, the express image of the Father. He acted as God because he was God. And again, God in the flesh. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Logos was God. He did exactly as God did, the express image of God, the Father. Jesus did the very same things. There's a, a word in this text, the word tauta in the Greek, which means the very same things Jesus did in the very same manner. Another word, homoios. So Jesus did the very same things in the very same manner as the Father. In other words, he acted and behaved exactly as God acted and behaved. And even to this point, presently, he acted and behaved exactly, or he acts and behaves exactly as God acts and behaves, always. And therefore, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father. Therefore, that makes him equal with God. Consider the words of Jesus before going to the cross. In his high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, I, I, I direct your attention to verse 11 here. There's a number of verses that we could use, but let me just look at verse 11 for just a moment. And now Jesus said, I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. In other words, Jesus, in praying unto the Father, says to him, uh, I, I'm no more in this world. I mean, this is it. I'm, I've come to the end of my earthly ministry. But these are in the world. In other words, his disciples, he's praying for his disciples. And even if you read the whole prayer, he's even praying for us, disciples that come later. But he says, but these are in the world and I come to thee. And then he says, Holy Father. And let me just interject here. These are the words of Jesus about his father. And by the way, his father is the only one that is to be called Holy Father. Holy Father. There's only one. It's Jesus' Father. Please understand that. And he says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. That we would be one together. And keep that in mind when we come to the table of communion today, that we be one as the Father and the Son are one. That is a claim, but it's not a claim to convince the Father. The Father already knows they're one. But he makes it clear to us, he and the Father 
are one. Now the second proof that Jesus gives to these religionists that he was equal with God was his great works. Look at verse 20 now of John chapter 5. Verse 20 says, For the Father loveth the Son, and he shows himself all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now, the relationship between the Father and the Son, let's remember this, that the relationship between the Father and the Son is not a master-slave relationship. Never has been and never will be. But it is a relationship based on love. The love of the Father for His Son. The love of the Son for the Father. The love of the Father for the Son and the Spirit. The love of the Spirit for the Father and the Son. The love of the Son for the Father and the Spirit. <laughs> it's all based on love. It's all based on agape. The love of God. The unconditional love of God. The love that seeks nothing in return. But within that but within that unity, that triunity, I mean, it's just oozing with love. The idea is that the Father continues to love and never stops loving the Son. There is never a moment when that love diminishes. It is a perfect love that never ceases to give. And Jesus said that the Father was going to show him greater things to do, greater things than the healing of the paralyzed man. The things that we're going to begin to see later on in the, book of, in the Gospel of John. Greater things than this healing of this paralyzed man. In fact, Jesus would be controlling the forces of nature. How many times do we see Jesus in the Gospels? When with his disciples on a, on a ship or a boat on, on, on the Sea of Galilee. How many times do we see that when they face a tremendous trial or a tremendous uh, storm that nearly overturns the boat and the disciples are just scared out of their gourds, that Jesus just speaks to the storm and the storm stops. That's a greater work. What about the feeding of the 5,000 men, which means that, that the men had their families, they had their sons and their daughters and their, and their wives, and so anywhere from about twelve to 15,000 people were fed that day by, by, by Jesus who divided up a little boy's lunch of fish and bread, fed these 10, 12, 15,000 people out on this, this grand, grand field. He separated all in, in, in certain numbers, and, and then he feeds them all. And then after they're all full and fed, they gather 12 basketfuls of food after that. That's a wonder. That's, that's a miracle. That, that, that is a greater work. Or the raising of the dead. Whether a little girl or Lazarus, his friend, raising them from the dead and healing multitudes of people and then even instituting a greater law, the law of the Son of Man. A law that when questioned, Jesus said, when questioned as to what was the greatest law. And Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. The second is just like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In these hang all the law and the prophets. And if you miss it, you miss a lot. But the, the central key to those laws, the law of the Son of Man, is the love of God that we, are to, that we are to have, that we are to express. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Love him, respect him, honor him, worship him, praise him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. When Jesus explains it in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, he says, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
It will all be fulfilled. And it is Jesus who fulfills it. It's the Lord Jesus himself who fulfills the law. That is why when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can receive his everlasting grace, his unmerited favor. Because it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. Why? Because he loved us that way. He loves us that much. The third proof that Jesus was equal with God was his power to give life. And this is now the next layer that he gives to these religionists, to these legalists. He says in verse 21, he says, For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, which means makes them alive. To quicken in, in the King James language is to make alive. So for as the Father raises up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. Even, the, even so the Son will make alive whom he will. We all know this one truth, or we should. God alone can give life. Satan is a counterfeit, and, and you know, when you read in the book of Revelation, he, he tries to counterfeit that he can give life. He can't. Only God can give life. So, with that in mind, therefore, if he wishes to take a dead body and give life to it, he can. And we see Jesus do that again in, in the scriptures. But in giving life and raising from the dead, God is sovereign, not constrained or restrained, having the power and authority, and exercises perfect love, justice, and wisdom. So if a person is dead and then he raises them back to life, there, there is a sense of understanding there that there is a perfection of God, there is a justice of God, and certainly there is a wisdom from God for the, for the sake of raising this man or woman back into life. But it's all in God's hands. He's in control because he's sovereign. And he has the authority to do so. So he knows exactly what he is doing, and he does it perfectly. Equally, though, Christ gives life to whom he wills as well. Christ give, gives life to whom he wills. Jesus quickens and gives life to a person when that person believes on him, and the life that he gives is both abundant and eternal. What kind of life are we talking about? We are talking about eternal life, which is spiritual life. Now, your homework, of course, for tonight is going to be Ephesians chapter 2. You read Ephesians chapter 2, and at the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us there that, that, that Paul talks about the fact that once we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was a time that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're very much alive physically like we are here today. So none of us can ever claim that we're not in the flesh, because here we are today in the flesh. I can see you because I can see you. And you can see me. We're in the flesh, right? We're not phantoms here. But hopefully you're also a spiritual person. You're a spiritual person made alive because God has made you alive spiritually through Christ to be his sons and daughters. Whereas before, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, therefore you were dead spiritually. But in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace are you saved. And later on in that very same chapter, in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You are now made alive in Christ. And folks, one of the very proofs of that is that there was a time that we were told about Jesus, we were told about the gospel, or we were given a Bible, and we opened the Bible, and we looked at it, we tried to read it, and we said, I don't understand this. How many of you experienced that? Come on, be honest. A lot of us did. We, you know, we, could, read, we could read the words, we could read the stories, but, but it didn't make sense to us. And if we read something that was a little bit more theological, we were saying, well, this doesn't make sense at all. Not until... You were changed. Not until that moment when you came to realize you were a sinner and you needed Jesus Christ in your life. And the next thing you know, somebody said to you, listen to these words, John 3.16, for God, God, who created the heavens and the earth, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave Jesus Christ. Gave him completely, even to the end, which was death, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whoever it is, from wherever he comes, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And all of a sudden the light bulb went on. And we began to understand that. And then when we prayed to receive Jesus into our lives, we would begin to open the Bible and more and more the Lord gave us light. And the more light he gave us, the more understanding we had. The more understanding we had, the more we realized how much God really, truly loved us. That was spiritual life now. And we can understand because of what Jesus Christ did. And in giving us the Holy Spirit, it is something that continues to keep us where we need to be in, in God and in Christ and in his word. And so he, he is doing, and what he does, he does perfectly. And Jesus gives us that kind of life. And see, I got ahead of myself already because look at, look at what's up next. <laughs> already read it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I added that one, just because I already had this one up there. But there's something else that we need to understand. We can best understand this about Jesus. When he's about ready to be, uh, about ready to ascend into heaven, and he's with his disciples, toward the end of Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of Matthew, Jesus came to his disciples, he spoke unto them, and he said, all power, and by the way, all power and authority, all power and authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus has the power and the authority to give life. And through us to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you always, even unto the end. The fourth proof that Jesus was equal with God was his control over the whole judicial process. He was in control of the whole judicial process. And by the way, we have to say he is in control of the whole judicial process. <clears throat> because there, there is a day when Jesus is coming back and he's going to come back to judge. What we read in John 3, 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That was his first coming. He came to save. But when he comes again, he's going to sit on the throne of David and one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to judge the nations and he's going to judge individuals. But the fourth proof that Jesus was equal with God was his control over the whole judicial process. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. Now I want you to read those words carefully because a lot of people have said, well, I thought it was the Father that judged. Listen to Jesus again. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. That, and notice this, that word that tells us there's a purpose in it. That all men should honor the Son. Even as they honor the Father, he that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which has sent him. Most people think, as I said, that God the Father will judge the world and that they will have to stand before God the Father in the day of judgment. But Jesus claimed that God the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And the scene here, in effect, the scene here is that is being described is that of the, su the supreme court of the universe presided over by Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And I have to tell you that the Supreme Court of the United States will have to stand be before the Supreme Court of the universe before Jesus Christ. And this is, this is something that we see very clearly throughout all of Scripture. I'm only going to give you a few verses because of time. But if you look at Acts chapter 17, verse 31, let's turn there. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. I want to turn there too. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. This is the Apostle Paul preaching at, on Mars Hill 
uh, to the philosophers of, in, in Athens. <clears throat> what he says to them is this, because he has appointed a day, speaking of God, the Father, because he has appointed a day into which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. The idea is that, yes, God judges, but how he judges is the question. It's the issue. So, he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men, in that he has raised him from the dead. The man that is going to judge, the man Christ Jesus, is the one that is being spoken of here. So it is Jesus who is, in fact, the one who will judge. If you turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ being the one who judges, according to my gospel. And then I think the one that, that is, is, is most clear, and, and, the, and actually the one that is most personal as far as Paul writing to his son Timothy, uh, his son in the faith Timothy, in his last letter written before he uh, is martyred for his faith, Paul says in this chapter, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, uh, where he tells Timothy to go and preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. But in verse 1, this is how he sets that up. He says, in the day, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grammatically speaking, what the subject is all about and the object of, is all about is, is this. The Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Who shall judge the quick, which means the living, and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Now, the purpose for all judgment being given to Jesus Christ is a singular purpose. The purpose for all judgment being given to Jesus Christ is singular. And here it is. God the Father has willed that man or that all men should honor the Son just as they honor him. This is what Jesus said now in verse 23. God the Father has willed that all men honor the Son just as they honor him. The idea is that God had determined that men will keep honoring the Son with the very same honor and worship that they give him. In our text, in the Greek tense, in verse 23, what is used as a tense is the present active subjective tense that says, that if you honor the Son, you are honoring the Father. And this is a truth that shatters. It is a truth that breaks. It is a truth that even destroys men. Because it means that if a man does not honor Jesus Christ, he does not honor God. And if he does not worship Jesus Christ, he does not worship God. Now you might say, well... The, I mean, does that really happen? Hey, let's look, at, let's look at the statistics from all of these polls that are done by Gallup and others. In a very general sense, when people are polled or, 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 or surveyed as to whether they believe in God, in the last 20 to 25 years, the, the, it's, it's gone from about 90 percent down to about 73 percent but nonetheless 73 to 90 percent of people in this earth say that they believe in God what does that mean I would say that even if it was at the lowest at 73 percent if 73 percent of the people on this earth or in this country I should say in this country believed in God do you think we would be in the mess that we're in today with all the evil and the wickedness that's going on So it's one thing to say that you believe in God. It's another thing to say that you believe in Jesus Christ and you do what he says. And you believe what he says. And you stand upon what he says. And you do the things that he says. What a difference that is, isn't it? It isn't just about saying that you believe in God. Everybody says, oh, I believe in God. But it's never really defined which God are you talking about. Because too often the God that some people are talking about is the God of themselves. Is the God of self, or is the God of wealth, or of fame, or of fortune? There are many gods. 
But there's only one true God. And the true God says, if you don't honor my son, you don't honor me. You can read through the Gospels here, especially in John. Take, for instance, what Jesus says in John 15, verse 23, he that hateth me hateth my father also. I mean, that doesn't take a lot of interpreting, to, interpreting I should say, to, to, to interpret that, does it? It's pretty clear. He that hateth me hateth my father also. Luke 10, verse 16, when Jesus sends out the 70 to go two by two and to, you know, to go out and touch people, preach the gospel and all, he that heareth you heareth me, and he that despises you despises me, and he that despises me despises him that sent me. If you despise me, you're, you're despising the one who sent me, which is God the Father. You can't say. You cannot say that you love God and, and hate Christ and still love God. For the words of Jesus in Mark 8:38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We can't say that we're ashamed of the Son. He's going to come in the glory of his Father. We're living in a day and time where we are going to be challenged as to whether we are ashamed of God or not, or ashamed of Christ or not, or ashamed of the gospel or not. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 8, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, verse 18? He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I think Romans 16, uh, 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I'm not ashamed. And neither should we be. Ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus. We should not be ashamed of Jesus himself. Never. For if we are ashamed of him, he says, I'll be ashamed of you when I come in the glory of my Father. But it was John in his first letter to the church, 1 John chapter 2. We're almost done here so we can come to the table of communion. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, John says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Mashiach, the Christ? He is Antichrist, he says. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Now, I know that that applies today in a very strong way to Islam because they deny Jesus as the Son of God. But then it says, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same has not the Father. So if you deny Jesus, you're denying the, the Father. You're denying God. But he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So if you acknowledge the Son, then you have all of the fullness of the Godhead. Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. You see, we cannot separate the Godhead. We cannot separate the Godhead. And this is the promise that he has promised us even eternal life. This is the reason why we have to examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith, the faith of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the Father, who we are to honor as we honor the Son. So with that in mind, let's come to the table of communion with the words of Jesus in verse 24. And we're going to actually come back to this next time, and this is where we'll begin to start closing out that chapter, this chapter, chapter 5. But in John 5, verse 24, the last thing that we see Jesus say to these uh, religious leaders is, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word. Now Jesus is proclaiming the good news here. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, has everlasting life. Isn't that the gospel? Didn't Paul say, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God and the word of God being spoken by Jesus himself here? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. We cannot split up the equality that, uh, with God that Jesus has. 
So he says, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. But God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, in Christ, for by grace are you saved through faith. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So as you take this bread and this cup this morning, very simple little symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, in and of themselves, they're just a little piece of bread and a little bit of juice. But it is what they represent that matters. And what matters here, here today is that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on our behalf on the cross, that he shed his blood and that in the shedding of his blood was, would come the remission or forgiveness for our sins. And us believing that and believing that he was buried after his death and on the third day he rose again from the dead. That believing that, we are saved. We are to take these elements today and remember this. And remember that as we honor the Son, we are honoring the Father. That we're dealing with, 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 with a Messiah who is equal to his Father. For he was obedient. And as they are one, so are we to be one. And that is what we want to focus on as we take the bread and cup today.